Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond, and today I'm pleased to be welcoming Dr. Josh Packard and Dr. Todd Ferguson, both authors of the book Stuck, which we'll be talking about here shortly. Josh is a sociologist and researcher. He was the founding executive director of Springtide Research Institute and former professor at the University of Northern Colorado, where he was also the executive director of the Social Research Lab. He currently serves as the Vice President of Strategy for the National Catholic Educational Association. Josh is the author of the groundbreaking book, Church Refugees, Sociologists Reveal Why People Are Done With Church But Not Their Faith, as well as numerous academic articles about faith and religion. Todd is a sociologist of religion at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton, Texas. His research focuses on the social organization of religion, specifically congregations and their clergy. He is fascinated with the fact that religions are more than ideas and beliefs. They create structures and communities that profoundly affect people's lives. He earned his PhD in sociology at Baylor University. Before becoming a sociologist, Todd earned a Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School and was a pastor in Houston. Todd is married to Emma, a veterinarian, and they have two wonderful children. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Todd Ferguson and Dr. Josh Packard. So thanks, gentlemen, for both being here. Uh, what else would you like listeners to know about you? Go for it, Todd. Well, you, want, you want me to say things about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, other than my uh, professional life, I'm a dad of two active young kids, and um, that's that is literally the majority of my world <laughs> is parenting right now. And, um, and then um, as a sociologist, a lot of my time is I love teaching. I'm in the classroom a lot. And so um, in addition to researching stuff about pastors and churches, um, I love being with my students. Awesome. How about you, Josh? Uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a former academic, I guess. I was a professor for a long time and um, have now moved into a series of roles in nonprofit organizations and other things. My Probably my passion within sociology and, and, and higher ed generally is, and what led to this book in particular is making sure that the stuff that we're doing and learning about um, the theories, the data, et cetera, move outside of the academy. I mean, I was an applied sociologist and an applied sociology department and really just love, I think that sociology has a lot more to offer the world than we often um, give it credit for. And and so I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure some of that stuff gets out to where people can actually make good use of it. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, I think I first read, uh, came across your work. What was it? Something for um, group publishing? Can't remember the title. Was that your work, right? Yeah, it was a different research project. It was called Church Refugees. Yeah. Um, about why people who are, you know, keeping their faith and their belief systems intact, but deciding ultimately that the institutional church is just not a place that is for them. So we call them yeah. the duns, um, as opposed to, you know, the sort of nuns who have no religious affiliation. And that was a, I mean, a project in, in an unintentional way. I mean, it sort of 
led into this book that um, Todd and I ended up writing because in the course of doing the data collection for that book, I kept seeing like pastors and priests and clergy generally like, pop their heads up and say like, I'd love to be interviewed for this project. And I was like, this is not for you. Like, this is not the, like, I hope you still are in the church. You have a job there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just sort of put it aside and, and uh, love that book. Like it was great to, to, to do that project, but um, knew that there was probably a pastor book in there somewhere, but it wasn't probably, it wasn't like for me to write. And that's what, like having Todd come along and really pick it up as a, with an MDiv and a pastor background made it, you know, just a lot better. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, let's start out t- uh, sharing with the kind of guests, your faith journeys. Um, Todd, why don't you share about yourself, if you don't mind, kind of about your faith journey, what that looked like in the past, what that looks like today. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was raised in East Texas, which for uh, people who don't know, that's sort of the last, uh, the, the Western edge of the deep South, if that makes sense. Um, so a lot of people think of Texas as somewhat separate from the South. I was raised in the part that was absolutely like the deep South. And so um, that's important to my faith journey because I was, um, I, I grew up in sort of a, um, a, a first church, uh, like a downtown, you know, church. Mm-hmm. So was, I went to First Baptist Church of Longview, Texas, and that was really pivotal to my faith journey. Um it was a really healthy church, really dynamic church, had a really dense community there. Um, um, yeah, I did the traditional um, sequence for Baptist teenagers or Baptist kids, you know. So 10 years old, uh, made a profession of faith, got baptized. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I, I went to Baylor for undergrad um, and started to, I was a psychology major, had a religion minor started looking at seminary and um, I, I loved my religion classes. I thought for me, it actually deepened my faith to have the academic side of learning about scripture. And so I wanted to deepen that. Um, and so started looking out, out uh, for seminaries when I was in college, visited a couple and I ended up going to Duke Divinity School because I wanted a place that was ecumenical. I wanted to learn from other people, from other traditions within Christianity. Um, but I also wanted a place that supported Baptists, which is my, you know, my home tradition. Mm-hmm. And that sort of fit the mold. Um, you know, my preaching professor there was a black Pentecostal. Um, my New Testament professor was a Methodist. My roommates were Presbyterian. Um, it was just an amazing experience to see the full range of Christianity. Um, and after that, I was an associate pastor for youth and children, which was a tall order, uh, you know, from babies to 18 year olds. Um, but I, I mean, I loved it. Um, I was in Houston. Babies all the way to 18 year olds, Todd? Yes. Wow. Um, and I tried to do some areas well, and you know, I failed at other areas. <laughs> um, but it was it, the the church was a member of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and um, it was just a, a thoughtful, loving congregation. And so I had a great time. Like people ask me, "Am I was I stuck pastor?" And I actually say no. Like I loved it. Did I feel those dynamics that were creeping in on there? Yeah. But um, I, I had a great experience. 
Um, but as I was there, I started asking questions of how larger social forces were affecting mm-hmm. churches. And so I realized I needed to go study sociology of religion. And it's one of those things that I look back in my life and I see that I've always been a sociologist of religion. Always. Um, when I was 16 years old and got a driver's license, um, one of the first things I did was I asked my friend who went to an Episcopal church, hey, I hear you go to a different church. Take me. I want to go. Mm-hmm. And so I went, you know, and and I was taking notes. I wasn't I was taking field notes like a sociologist does um, as a 16-year-old, and I've done that all my life. So I found my home, my sort of academic home in sociology. Um, One of the few places that allows you to study sociology of religion is Baylor. And so I Mm. went back to Baylor, Mm -hmm. different department. um, And I had just gotten married. In fact, when I was engaged, um, I told my fiance, like, I'm applying to these graduate schools and one of them's in Waco. And she goes, where's Waco? And <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we moved as newlyweds there and spent five years in graduate school. Um, while I was there, I was a member of a church called, or while I was in graduate school, I was a member of a church called Harris Creek Baptist Church. Um, mm-hmm. and I was a life group leader there. Had a really, once again, a dense community. I, I found that has been really important in my life of faith. Um, and then, um, after graduate school, um, got a job at University of Mary Harden Baylor, where I am now, but we actually stayed in Waco. Um, and so I commute down to a different city, about 45 minutes away from where I live. Um, and yeah. And so I, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm in the parenthood stage. And so my thoughts often in terms of faith and spirituality are not so much of my own faith, but how do I pass that on to my kids in healthy ways? And that's sort of where my brain is at now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, Josh, how about you? Wait, hold on. I've got one question. I, you know, I know Todd. Well, Todd, you ever get the, do you ever get the itch to go back into the, uh, being a pastor again? So that's a great question. No, but uh, three weeks ago, I officiated a wedding for a who was a, a guy who was in my youth group, and I was really close with him. I don't do a lot of weddings anymore, and I realized I missed being in that community of being in um, in intimate moments of people's milestones. Yeah, yeah, and that was a huge part. And I trust. Wow, I don't have that anymore. Um, but in terms of like leading a congregation or doing that weekly. I don't have an itch for that. <laughs> Not <right now. laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, I grew up in the, uh, I, my, <clears throat> my parents had a coin toss. Uh, when I turned 13, my dad's Catholic. My mom was Lutheran and my mom won the coin toss. So I went to the Lutheran church mm-hmm. and I'm almost certain that if, uh, if she had lost, then we were going to go for two out of three and then three out of five. I mean, this wasn't, mm-hmm. it was sort of like a, <laughs> a pseudo coin toss, right? Um, she was going to keep going until she won. So I grew up in the ELCA church, which um, is one of these places that has maybe the most profoundly boring liturgy that's ever been created, <laughs> like uh, wrapped around just this really compelling theology of, uh-huh. you know, saved by grace and mm-hmm. a, a distinct openness and willingness to listen to people. Um, 
and uh, and loved that. Loved that. We ended up going to I went to a, I went to a college not 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 a college that you apply to so much as you sign up for. So like Todd has this really distinguished academic career: Baylor, Duke, Divinity School, and PhD. I, I went to Texas Lutheran University. Um, I think because there was a like somebody pinned something to the bulletin board and I put my name on it, mm-hmm. and so then they let me in. Um, as, a, as an English major. But the reason that's important is because I was a um, campus ministry assistant there. And I've always seen um, my faith really as uh, in like significantly intimately intertwined with vocation. And and there's no, I, I, don't, I don't, this is not a thing that I would share with students very often when I was a professor because they wouldn't understand it. I worked in state schools and this just would be like, they would have no background for this when I would tell them like the reason I became a sociologist is because uh, I'm a person of faith and I don't know how to separate those two things. Yeah, the, yeah. The, my favorite thing about being a sociologist, whether you're making a survey or doing an interview is like, you're going to, you're going to get a chance to be intimately involved in somebody's life. And in fact, in some, in some cases, they're going to be telling you a story from beginning to end that they have never told anybody else from beginning to end. And I, I just like, I find that to be such a profound moment to enter into somebody's life like that and to get their trust um, because they believe in the project that you're working on. And it's just, it's a sacred moment for me. Um, and, and, have, and, and loved that. And so the, the two things were, were always so close again, like students at state schools would look at me, like my hair was like literally changing colors in front of them. If mm-hmm. I tried to explain this and it was, I would have these conversations like in my office with a select few students, et cetera, and found religion to be, um, both a setting to explore sociological questions that I just knew well. So I was interested in organizational dynamics. I knew a lot about religion because I'd been involved in it. And so then would use religion to do that, but also um, a place that needed to be explored in its own right. I mean, in some ways we've got traditional markers of religiosity at, you know, approaching, if not already at all time lows, things like attendance, for example. And yet it's hard to find a story, um, in the news or, you know, that impacts geopolitical events or people's day-to-day lives that doesn't have a pretty significant religious angle. And mm-hmm. I find that part to be like, we, we can't, like Todd will, Todd will alluded to it when he said Baylor is one of the few places that you can study religion. So he made the very wise choice to go to Baylor. I went to Vanderbilt for my PhD, which doesn't allow you to study religion and just decided I would do that anyway, which is significantly <laughs> harder of a task with less support um, and had a great advisor there. But it was, you know, I just, I just kept coming back to it. I'm like all, all these immigration things that my peers were studying, I kept seeing it as a, as you know, through these religious lenses, all hmm. these, you know, gender issues that my colleagues are studying. I kept seeing it through religious lenses. So, um, it, it is for me both uh, career and calling. Mm-hmm. Um, we go. We ended up at a Lutheran church now, but um, f- as my son goes into confirmation, and happy to be there. Awesome. Uh, I guess that's a tough sell. Then maybe to our ELCA friends. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Is there anybody in the ELCA standing up to say that they <laughs> love that? Look, it's a really great theology. That's why we went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, maybe we'll work that into our forthcoming here conversation. Uh, well, look, my opinion, the, the opinions reflect the views of the second author of this book only. Yeah. No, I'm not <laughs> Fair enough. Um, a spiritual practice for y'all, something that's meaningful uh, that we're held kept you grounded here in the last few years, Todd? Um, for me, so like I said earlier, I commute about 45, 50 minutes every day. Uh, one way every day. And so 
recently in the past, I don't know, six months, I've been listening to Common Prayer Daily, the podcast, which is, it's just morning prayer in Mm -hmm. the Episcopal tradition, but it's very meditative. uh, It's grounded. And when there are days when I don't want to pray, it's nice to have someone pray with me, for me, um, and know that I'm connected to the larger Christian tradition. So that for me has been helpful lately. Awesome. Uh, Josh, how about you? The, uh, the congregation that we go to. So I, I just, as, as I get finished, like setting the ELC liturgy on fire, right, right. Let, me, let me back this up by saying that um, we named our son Holden after an ELC liturgy called the Holden evening prayer, which is developed out of Holden village in mm. Washington. It's not, uh, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. And um, our church does it uh, every Wednesday uh, in Lent. And so, I mean, it's, it would be, it wouldn't be too much of an understatement to say that I spend the rest of the year looking forward to it. So I'm very happy to be engaged in that practice right now. Awesome. Uh, I'm reminded, speaking of ELC liturgy, liturgy, I don't know if you're familiar with Ryan Panzer, uh, author. He's an ELCA guy. Um, I gave him some grief in one of the prior episodes about um, ELCA liturgy, and he wasn't having any of it. So <laughs> he was. Look, I can still recite the Green Book from memory from yeah, when I was a kid. He was so a, I know it. <laughs> all in on keeping that tradition. Well, let's. I'm excited to talk to uh, Todd and Josh. So a few months ago, I got the privilege to check out the book Stuck that they're authors of Why Clergy Are Alienated from Their Calling, Congregation, and Career, and What to Do About It. And I was especially intrigued by the What to Do About It, which um, we'll leave some time for, um, but you know, just honestly, guys, as a pastor, someone who works in a church context, who has lots of friends in church contexts, the some of the things that y'all talked about in your book really resonated with what I've experienced and what I've seen, um, and especially as I see so many clergy right now just really struggling with burnout and feeling if they want to stay in the profession, and that's why I really want to have this conversation. Um, so I think, I mean, Josh, you kind of introduced kind of like what's kind of kickstarted the book. So what I want to hear about really first, and maybe Todd, you can share about this because you alluded to it, is kind of these three powerful social forces that are really, I don't know, wrecking havoc, if we, if that's too strong a word, in church right now. Yeah. Um, so the three gigantic social forces that we saw in play um, one was social Darwinism, this idea that it's sur- survival of the fittest. If your church um, doesn't compete well, if it doesn't get enough members or money, it's it's going to shut down. Now, yep. it, might, it might take a generation or two, but it will shut down. Um, and so that's one giant social force that's really outside of the control of pastors. Um, second one would be capitalism. Um, and here, what I mean by that is a focus on growth and profit. And I don't mean making money as, you know, technical profit, but this idea of always being concerned with growth and numbers and quantitative measures. Um, once again, if you don't get enough members or money and those are things you count, you close your doors. Those two social forces are nothing new in America. Um, We've had that since colonial times. We don't have an established church. 
Um, and so if churches can't rely on taxpayer money, um, and so they have to generate money. They have to gain members. Um, so th- those two social forces, nothing new. What is new is the third force, which is secularization. Um, there are just fewer people to recruit. Um, there are fewer religious people in America. Um, and there are, there are fewer people who are interested in attending a church. And that has changed the game for pastors. So the, the rules of the game have changed. It used to be, hey, compete with each other um, and grow and you're going to do great. But now the rule is compete, grow, but there are fewer resources out there. There are mm-hmm. fewer members. There are fewer. There's fewer. There's less money out there, and so good luck. That's what you know. Basically, we're telling pastors that. Um, and so some churches are doing remarkably well. Of course, they are. They are growing. They're healthy. They're thriving. But for the pastors who got the short end of the stick, um, they're feeling that weight, and so. But we often blame pastors for the outcomes. Yeah, we interpret it as their individual faults in leadership, right? When it's these gigantic social forces that no one will be able to change individually. And Josh, I'm going to speak here as a pastor because you know I these are where this is where like these forces really become difficult for a pastor because like. If I'm seen as accountable for the growth and the financial stability of my church or institution, um, that kind of like secularization, or I'll frame it this way, I think that secularization and that capitalism has creeped into where church members or church participants interpret kind of the functionality and the, for lack of a word, the kind of the the organizational business institutional side of the church as needing to be seen through these like growth and profit and capitalism um, aspects. So like I heard this recently, like a pastor, you know, talking to their, to their, to their board or whatever, their leadership about raise. And it's like, well, they're, those folks aren't going to respond to like, Hey, you need to make more money because, Inflation is high and the economy is tough and this is an expensive place to live. You need to sell them on like what the metrics or how you're helping grow the institution type thing. And and again, as a clergy person, like that's really hard because like Todd said, I can't control outcomes, right? Well, I think it's, I mean, I know know this is on the list of questions to get to, but this is really the bait and switch that's at the heart of seminary training for pastors. I mean, the reality is that, you know, yes, you are are responsible for the outcomes of your congregation. Mm -hmm. And that has always been the case. But that's not what we put on the brochure when we're trying to convince people to go to seminary. Maybe it was at Duke Divinity. I don't know, Todd, you can speak to that. But (laughs) I don't think that's it. I mean, we talk to, you know, we talk about religious formation and you know, transforming communities and saving souls and all these kinds of things. But because of this, because of what Todd was just describing, that entrepreneurial aspect has always been um, a piece of organized religion in America. 
now there, what happened is that like, there were just times when, as Todd mentioned, like the pool of people to draw from and the robustness of giving was such that we, we could sort of pretend like we didn't have to be entrepreneurs as pastors, but the reality is that we always were. I mean, this is in contrast, as, as Todd was sort of mentioning, to like in Europe where, okay. you know, the ceiling is the state's, you know, tax dollar support in a lot of places, mm-hmm. um, churches, right? So the ceiling is much lower. You don't find like mega churches over there in the way that you do here, but also the floor is much higher. Um, churches don't go out of business, quote unquote, in the same way. And look, like in the next, in this decade, before the, before the 2020s is over, there's going to be something like um, tens of thousands of churches are going to close their doors. Yeah. Uh, there, and, and some people, there's, there's a book coming out, an anthology coming out next fall called Gone for Good. And their premise is that this is going to be the largest property transition since the GI Bill. And that just to put things in perspective of like, that's the floor in American religion of like, you know, that your doors are going to close, your building is going to get sold, it's going to become an apartment complex or a shopping center mm-hmm. or whatever if you don't start planning for these things. And it puts pastors in this really tough spot, again, you know, who are carrying like seminary debt based on the idea that they were going to be counseling people through major life transitions and you know, big events. And now they find themselves in places where they're basically building managers in a lot of cases and budget managers. Yeah. That's hard. Let's stay on this topic, even though we're kind of off script and that's okay. Because I think one of the things that, again, I really appreciate about this book is y'all kind of take two, I don't know, approaches, at least as far as your clergy, you know, you take a look at evangelical clergy and then you take a look at mainline clergy and the challenges are somewhat different. Mm -hmm. uh, But also there's some, obviously some crossover, but the, the, types of challenges that mainline clergy are often facing tend to be pretty unique versus what, at least from what I read, and I think from my own experience, what evangelical clergy are experiencing. So let's talk about that. I think, um, you, you, I think you quoted one pastor in the book who, who wrote, who said something that like an MDiv is a worthless degree, which again, <laughs> that's a strong opinion, but I mean, I, as I've looked at my own like job, possibilities outside the church. I'm like, man, does it, does anybody care that I have this master's degree that does it real, does it resonate with anyone outside the church? Um, so you have a quote, let me see here if I can find it, that seminaries need to do a better job. Um, where is it here? Seminaries need to do a better job um, to help ministers understand financial and organizational needs of congregations in ways uh, that do not restrict spiritual leadership. Um, so talk more about what you're getting after uh, with that. Yeah, I think um, first off, that comment came from, you know, a pastor who was questioning why he didn't go get an MBA. Yeah. And a lot of his denominational higher ups were like, ah, the pattern you need to follow is more MBA, mm-hmm. not shepherd. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a lot of the pastors we spoke to, some felt stuck and they were still in the ministry. About half felt stuck and they had actually exited the ministry. And a lot of them talked about that the MDiv was not interpretable. It wasn't transferable. Right. Yeah. Um, and I get that. Like I remember when I was in the church, uh, a congregant came up to me and said, well, didn't you take classes in volunteer leadership? And I was like, I, I took classes in historical theology. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, 
I can tell you what the patristic said about the Holy Spirit, <laughs> but in terms of like managing people, yeah, I, I have no clue how to yeah. do it. You know, um, and I say that as someone who loved their MDiv. Like I, I'm mm-hmm. so thankful I have a master of divinity. But many of these now, granted, we are talking pe- about people who are dissatisfied with the profession, mm-hmm. so they're looking for a way out. And people would see their resume and they would, they would see MDiv and they didn't know what to do with it. Right. Um, one right. pastor even said they interpreted it as like, he went to Hogwarts for a couple of years. Like they just were like, <laughs> I have no clue how to even think about this. Degree. You yeah. might be better off saying that to some potential employers. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. I was, you know. Yeah. And so it, and so like, I'm, I don't want to dog on the MDiv. I have one. Mm-hmm. I loved it. But to ask people three years, you know, ATS requires 80 something uh, yeah. hours. Probably so it's one of the longest. At least 50,000, if not more. Right. So you're going into student debt. Um, and then if you want to transition, it's really hard. So one of the pastors we spoke to, he was a youth minister, loved working with youth, organized youth groups, outings, events. And so when he applied to be a parks and rec director yeah. at a city, you know, they're like, you don't have relevant experience. He's like, what are you talking about? That's all I've done for the past 10 years. And so there's this idea of a stigma attached to the word pastor on a resume mm-hmm. um, or an MDiv attached on a resume. That's unfortunate. That yeah. makes me sad, but that absolutely is there. People don't know how to deal with, the profession of pastor when they're trying to transition out, even though pastors, you know, they manage volunteers, they do public speaking, they do textual interpretation, you know, I mean, they have all these transferable skills, but they they create managed budgets. Right. 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 Yeah. Josh, let me ask you this. Cause I, I, it's funny that you said that Todd. So seeing these trends myself, like uh, I started and graduated uh, last spring with an MBA myself. Um, but I swear like in the church context, I think people look at me like, why the heck do you have an MBA? Do you care about church? Why would you get an MBA? So for me, it's like a double whammy of like, depending on which, um, context I'm in, people look at me like I'm crazy that I don't have a demon that I in, in chose to invest instead in an MBA. Uh, yeah. So Todd is very clearly like the, the empathetic heart of this book, uh-huh. um, along with bringing like most of the intellectual heft to it. And, and I'm like the external gadfly here. And I mean, it's a, look, there's, what's, <laughs> what, what are the other, I mean, if we just look at this structure, like what are the other three-year master's degrees? Well, I think it's law. Yeah. And I, if last time I checked, I'm pretty sure lawyers make more than pastors. Yeah. Uh, but like, there's just no, like, what is the rational case to be made for getting an MDiv? Now I get that that's not what we're doing. Look, my wife works in ministry. You know, I've very much talked about already on this, uh, talking about the, both the career choices that I've made and the work that I do as a calling. We've definitely left money on the table to do that, but at some level, right, these things, this gap needs to be closed. And, and what has happened in the, like, the the seminary's unwillingness or inability to innovate and adapt to a culture that is increasingly moving towards 
fewer hours and less credentialism, mm-hmm. um, sometimes no college at all, right. is that we're seeing these opportunities to do real ministry work pop up in other places. So it's not, oh, yeah, okay, lawyers are always going to make more than pastors, so everybody's going to – that's not the issue. Uh, Mark uh, – no, who is it? Um, Todd, do you remember who wrote Faith in the Halls of Power? Michael Lindsay. Michael Lindsay. Thank you. Um, and one of the really interesting things in that book, I mean, this is 10 years ago, is that pe- really powerful people were reluctant to get involved in their church sometimes because they could do more good and have more impact outside of that structure. Mm-hmm. And so you say you've got an MBA, and we're, I'm hearing that all the time from people who are like, look, I, I can, you know, now there are B Corps, they're actually like fundamental, right. like legal right. entities that will allow you, not just to mention the explosion of nonprofits, to have the kind of impact in you know outside of the church setting that you can't even have in, inside of church anymore. So it, the lack of innovation in these seminaries is actually being backfilled by people who are really interested in engaging in this messy space of entrepreneurship and for-profit, non-profit work as ministry Yeah, um, without having to get a three-year degree that isn't particularly transferable. Um, yeah, so I'm, it's, I'm, I understand it. I totally get it. Yeah, I'm a bit skeptical somewhat of the social entrepreneurship as like a as a side hustle just because of the realities of what startup business demands. But that mm-hmm. being said, I think it does in the right context it can be a unique opportunity to do social good. Um you know, working within the context of the American capitalistic economy. Um right. Because you can see how it's like a like that that thing in in and of itself is a direct sort of like expression of those social forces that Todd identified right, early. Right. Like right. I, I think for a long time the church has sort of thought like, oh, if people want to do ministry, they have to come to us. Right. And that's just not the case anymore. Right. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of off script here, but that's okay because I want to I want to run with this conversation here. Like I remember I posted your quote from your book on Twitter, and someone responded like. Seminaries need to completely revamp the MDiv to be like a sort of like MBA hybrid where it's like you talked about, Todd, volunteer um, volunteer management, um, grant writing, um, you know, uh, donor you know, fundraising. I'm trying to think of all these <laughs> classes that I took from my MBA with a nonprofit emphasis, you know, um, how to lead an organization. Do you think Todd like that? And a, exegesis, right? <laughs> exegesis. <laughs> I mean, practically speaking, I was thinking about this because one of my side hustles is I, I lead a small food pantry nonprofit, and I was thinking about the fact that for my nonprofit, you know, I have I have volunteers, I have donors, and I have clients, and broadly speaking, those are three separate groups. Whereas in a church, those are the same group. Mm. So, um. You know, so Todd, respond to some of that if you would. Yeah, I I think I'm a little bit more. Even though I okay, I wrote this book. We have that about the MDiv. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with this idea of repl- transitioning the MDiv to a more MBA like okay. setting or okay. you know a nonprofit management. Yeah. I struggle with that. And here's why. Agreed. Yeah. We do have to have within society, we do have to have some people who are keepers of the tradition. Yeah. 
uh, or stewards of mm-hmm. the tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have classical education. I'm not lamenting that, but we don't, you know, we're not teaching Greek or Hebrew at, for the most part at undergraduate level, uh, definitely not at the high school level, unless you go to a very niche high school. Mm-hmm. We do have to have people to be able to pass down the legacy of people who've read the classic texts um, so that it's not just Sunday school level education. Um, and that's why when it, it, I do worry about pastors who don't have any seminary education. Yeah. Um, you know, unless they're just really good readers, you know, but most of us are, we have to be forced to be <laughs> forced to read these, you know, ancient text. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I struggle now at the same time, I can also say the model is broken right now mm-hmm. and I don't know what it is. Do you shorten the requirement? Do you, you know, that do you shorten the lessen the hours taken? I, I don't know what the answer is, but I worry if, if the intellectual tradition of how to do exegesis of, you know, what did Augustine say? Mm-hmm. What did Thomas Aquinas say? Why is it important? Um, if we don't have a group of people who know that, then I think that's problematic. However, does every pastor need the MDiv? Hmm. I don't know about that. Yeah. You know, could there be a hybrid model of a year's worth of nonprofit management and a year's worth of theology? It could be, but so I don't want to throw the MDiv out, but at the same time, I can acknowledge that the system is broken. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah of course, we're, we're, uh, let me say this one one yeah. second real quick. we're having a very protestant conversation as well you know right. so like mm-hmm. the catholic model they're like what do you mean shorten it it's only three years <laughs> theirs is six year and they call it formation yeah. but also they don't have they're, they're not married right they they are provided for financially in terms of housing mm-hmm. food they're not having to be entrepreneurs right um, and so I, I, I have to just add that caveat. I think the Protestant MDiv might need to be reshaped. Um, but I just, I don't have an answer right now for that. Yeah, that's fair. Josh. Oh, I was just going to say stuck is, I think it has implications for seminaries, um, divinity schools, but it's not a divinity ref- school reform. Yeah. Book, yeah. Right? It's, a uh, taught in, uh, That'd be a fun book to write. <laughs> it'd be a fun, it'd be an interesting study to do. But but ultimately, I mean, I think that, that you know the outcomes here are, the, are what matter. We're not, we're probably not the right people to give diagnosis exactly about like how that reform and change should take place. Except except to note that for a lot of pastors, increasingly, you know the what you know what you learn in graduate school is never directly hundred percent related right. to what you end up doing in your life, whatever graduate program it is. But that per, that percentage has to like be significant. It has to be 60, 70, 80% or more. And I think what we're hearing a lot of pastors in the stuck say is like, well, there were just like a lot of this just isn't 
it's 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 lovely, but maybe like the balance of between like what is personally fulfilling and what is actually useful in my job is not the not where it needs to be. Yeah. Um. Let me let me switch gears here and kind of transition the conversation because I wanted to talk about. Y'all have a term in your book, what you call futurism. Um, let me see if I can find the quote here. But um, basically, it's the idea that, um, as I understood it at least, like that there's this temptation right now, and I've seen it in, in context that I've been in, this temptation you can kind of like throw out the past and just kind of build afresh and anew. And as I understood the argument y'all were trying to make is that like we need those – those kind of tr- some of those traditions, some of those institutions, because just building from scratch is just too much work. And I can just attest as someone who's tried to do, who, who's been a part of entities or movements or whatever word, and they've kind of like proposed that built from scratch model. And I'm just like, it is too much work. Like it just doesn't work from my perspective. Um, but talk more about this idea of futurism and why y'all see it as problematic. Yeah, and, and first off, I want to give full credit. This is not our idea. Okay. We're using it from Greg Jones and Andy Hogue. Um, and their book is Navigating the Future, Tradition, Innovation for Wilder Seas. So I just want to make sure, like, yeah, it's not our idea. We're okay. totally stealing it <laughs> because it's a great idea. Yeah. But yeah, so they offer, like, when things are unsettled, when things are... I think their term is bewildered. Like when we, we look at the future and we're like, we have no clue where to go. Just like we were having that conversation with seminaries right, and the right. MDiv. Um, they, they say, and, and what we use is there are two options, you know, traditionalism, you just dig your heels in and you're like, I am not changing. Mm-hmm. And then the other is futurism, this idea of just blow it all up. Both are naive in terms of how culture works um particularly futurism like you were saying to start from scratch that is not how culture works that's not how societies work um we're always building on top of what came from the past um traditionalism is naive just because it refuses to acknowledge change and societies and culture are always changing um, so they have this, and I think it's a wise phrase, traditioned innovation. So you sort of combine the two, um, where you don't blow it up. You know, you don't say, Hey, churches, the congregational structure is not working. Blow it up. You know, mm-hmm. seminaries, it doesn't seem like it's working. Get rid of seminaries. It's just like a, I don't know. It's very, it's very adolescent, hmm. you know, like, yeah. Also feels kind of like distinctly American. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's it's very American, very adolescent. You could even go very Protestant, you know. Mm. Um, and so tradition innovation is okay, what are the resources that we have from our past culture? Mm -hmm. Um, as sociologists, we look at culture as a toolbox. And so you when you have a problem, you look in your toolbox and what do you have? And Different cultures offer different tools. Um, And so tradition innovation says, okay, what tools do we have? And how can we use those wisely to create a new future? And when I read that, I just, it it resonated with me that 
Sure, we're we're offering some critiques of congregations. Um, we're offering critiques of pastoral ministry, but we don't just want to blow it up. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to wisely use what we've been given to navigate a very uncertain future. I, I do think the future is very uncertain. Yeah, Josh, anything to add there? Oh, just to say that I, I love. I mean, this is look. I'm, uh, United States here, like we do innovation in religion so much that we we didn't just have one great awakening. We paused to have a war in the middle, and then we had another one. Like <laughs> we love this stuff. Um, so this this idea of like tear it down and build it up is a part of our religious history, and I love that Todd. Like when when we're writing it, and he picks up on this part is really smart because when you combine that notion of innovation in a twenty twenty context, a lot of times it can feel like, oh, innovation means like burn it all down. Like let's, let's create the internet or something like right. this, but you can't do that with religion. Like we're not selling widgets, you know, you know what I mean? Like we're transforming souls and connecting people to the, you know, the greatest power that they can possibly be connected to. So you have to be integrated into these communities and into this line of thought, if it's going to have any chance at like sticking and, and, I just so I get really nervous about this idea of like I don't want anybody to read stuck and think that the idea is that yeah we should you know do away with seminaries and the MDiv and instead everybody gets an MBA I mean that'd be a terrible church right like it would be a short term transactional not very like uh, sustainable way of doing ministry but that doesn't mean that there's not like changes that can be right. made within those traditions. If I can take a shot here at the evangelical friends here, that sounds like an evangelical church. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it can be. Can sure, be. There's room for that. <laughs> My apologies, evangelicals who are listening had to take it too easy. I, I want to read right, this. Let's keep score. I've got Lutheran. We've already, we've already ticked off the Lutherans, yeah. all the evangelicals. Yeah. I want to read hey, this. Episcopalians, we're coming towards you. <laughs> uh, so I want to read this quote from the book because I think it, it, says it well. Futurism does not acknowledge that without leadership, institutions are not sustainable, and institutions are the means through which humans pass down the religious faith from one generation to the next. I mean, certainly we're living through an anti-institutional time here. Um, I I guess that speaks to the challenge. Yeah, I I think anytime we hear the word institutions, and our culture just sort of like, like you said, has a negative reaction. But as a sociologist, I think of institutions as the replacements for instincts. So humans were actually pretty instinctual less, like we don't have a lot of natural instincts. Hmm. Um, And so if I, you know, if I told a a beaver, hey, go build a dam, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that beaver is going to know how to do it. And they're going to they're going to do it pretty uniformly across all regions. So a beaver in Germany versus a beaver in Kazakhstan, the dam's going to be pretty similar. <laughs> um, I tell a human, go build a house. Mm-hmm. They don't naturally, we, I'm going to say we, right. <laughs> don't naturally know how to do that. We have to have been taught from previous generations. And those patterns are our institutions. And so if we just want to get rid of institutions or be anti-institutional, that's really problematic for the long-term 
passage of knowledge of how to work in the world, of how to do things in the world. Um, can institutions be problematic? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's our human level or even our population level of retaining memory of being a species from one generation to the next. And so to just get rid of institutions, that means we've just cut off part of our memory hmm. as humans. Yeah, that's good. Um, Josh, before we take a break here, why don't you kick off or kind of summarize what some of your solutions are to some of these bigger challenges? Um, well, okay. So I, I just, to touch on the institutions thing, I mean, it, just real quick, yeah, sure. the institutions are largely like, all, they serve as like repositories of trust for us. They allow us to transfer trust from an individual to a group of people in a really effective way. But as we noted in the book, like, Trust for institutions and for people with institutional roles and titles like pastor mm-hmm. has been steadily declining in this country for about 40 years or so, um, or maybe even a little bit longer. And that gets us into this solution and points us to, or you know, we could, which we can dive into more in the second section. But I mean, right now, institutions tend to lead with their institutionalness, like all of the authority of like, we've been here this long, look at how big we are, how many members we have, look at our titles. Um I'm sure Todd has seen this in his classrooms. I know I did when I taught. Like, nobody cared. None of my students cared about my PhD or that I went to, you know, a a graduate program that was ranked 26th and not 28th. And so I'm therefore so much more qualified (laughs) to be in front of you teaching. Um, All of these things are having to transfer over to relationships. Like, the trust for – the locus of trust now is, is is through the relationships that people have. Now, institutions can organize relationships. It, but with these, and we can talk about, you know, some of the ways that that can happen, but they're not set up very well right now to do that in part because we're sort of looking at the wrong things, measuring a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. We're slow to close some congregations that need to be closed and we're, you know, educating pastors and, and clergy into roles that they're maybe not, as we already talked about, super equipped to, to handle. And so a lot of the things that we talk about with regards to solutions are about how to I wouldn't say de-institutionalize, but de-emphasize the institutionalness of the sort of the sort of church that we've known for the last 60 or 70 years. But that, but the institutional structure still has to be there. I mean, we're sociologists. So there's no evidence uh, I can think of. Todd, you correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, sustained, coordinated human activity over a long period of time doesn't happen without institutions. Mm-hmm. And what I just described is basically what church is. Yeah. Sustained, coordinated human activity. And so we need them. Yeah. I was talking about, this sort of with another podcaster on another podcast around the, he gets us advertising campaign. And it's my perspective that like mainline churches, especially will market themselves as like, like their history, their building, um, their ideology, all things that people really don't care about. Um, And I think it's like you said, it's about like, how do you relate to me? How do we connect with one another? With, is what you care about what I care about type thing. Is that fair? I, I do think that's fair. And I, I mean, this is part of the reason why, like we're like, when you heard us like walking back this idea of like blow up the seminaries, because mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's not, I don't want the, I, none of us want the bait and switch of like, come to seminary to save souls, but yeah. then you're going to end up running a business. I want to bait and bait. Like the reason why most of these clergy got into seminary in the first place was still intact, even as they felt stuck, they just didn't feel like they got the opportunity to do it. And the shocking thing is like, 
that's actually what people need right now from the church. Yeah. Be relational, right? Like small, you know, smaller, more local, more intentional. Um, but in the desperation to keep doors open, they often feel like they don't have time to do it. Yeah. Okay. Real quick, let's highlight again those the solutions y'all outline here, if we can. Yeah, I'll t- I'll I'll do that. Um, yeah. So our three solutions, um, and there are others. We just right right wrote three yeah. because you know. Um, but one is this idea of knowing that relationships are layered. So. The pastors we spoke to, they felt like they were performing. Um, and I loved, Lauren, that y'all had a podcast a couple weeks ago with Paul Romid Levitt and Brian Davis about that. Like this idea of pastors are performing. Um, yeah, I was inspired they partly were, by your book here, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah and the, they struggled for authenticity. And so this idea of, okay, we could even look at Jesus's life. He had different concentric circles mm-hmm. of friends. Um, and so just be very knowledgeable, open that your congregation, it might not be your innermost concentric circle mm-hmm. and you still need a concentric, a very innermost circle where you can be authentic and express joys and doubts Um and hopefully they understand ministry, but it might not be within your congregation. So that was one, this idea of really have a clergy peer group, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, the second is tell your story Yeah. Um, to undermine democ- uh, democracy, sorry, <laughs> bureaucracy. <laughs> tell your story to undermine bureaucracy. Yeah, there we go. Um, so, and I... Josh, I think this was your phrase. No one's story or no one's calling is bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no one's calling is I want to go sell widgets. Right. And so if a church, if a congregation or if a pastor themselves can say, here's my story, here's my calling, here's what I feel passionate about following God to do, then it reminds us that, hey, this council meeting doesn't really line up with the church's calling. Yeah. This budget doesn't line up and it can push back on some of the bureaucratization. Mm-hmm. And, and as people well, like, yeah. it's hard to do because it's, it's an overly rationalized place. Like that's right. what bureaucracies are. And it, look, I've been in a lot of, a lot of faith-based settings doing interviews and working and stuff. And it's, it is still, it, it is jarring to tell people, you know, when if you were to sit down and say, like, make a budget and they're like, well, you know, how do we how do we close the gap between expenses and income? And you say, well, I'm not entirely sure yet, but I know that the expenses are the right things to do. And as people of faith, like we shouldn't ignore that gap, but we should march forward confidently knowing that, like, we believe that there will be a provision here. That is not a thing that will pass most boards, even <laughs> at churches where you think that it should. I mean, Todd, we wrote about this called the Iron Cage um, of congregations, but that's a, that's not our phrase. I mean, it comes from this, this notion of the iron cage of, uh, bureaucracies or institutions, very famous organizational theory. Um, but at the center of that is the reason why it's an iron cage is that you sort of, rest- you're restricted and then in part, like the, the trade-off there is that the institution ends up doing things, the organization ends up doing things that preserve its own longevity and stability. Mm-hmm. 
and that's a that can be a really good thing, right? It can also be an all-consuming thing that gets in the way of calling, yeah. Like that gets in the way of mission, yeah. And and so like you know Todd's notion of like tell this you know tell your story, storytelling and keeping people on mission, keeping people around centered around beliefs is a way of fundamentally undermining that. Does it introduce more risk? I mean, I think you could argue in the short term it probably does, yeah. but not over the long haul, yeah. And I, I saw a church do this really well, um, and I put it in the book. Um, so the church I was a part of when we first moved to Waco was Harris Creek Baptist Church, and they had it in their bylaws um, that every January they have to have a business meeting mm-hmm. for the entire church to go over budgets. And it sounded really dry, and they made it an amazing event. Um, they rented out the local theater. They did a whole production in terms of like videos from the past year. They said, here's what we've done here. And they did some numbers, you know, they said, here's how many people joined or came to Jesus. Um, But then they said, here's where we're going to go based off of our calling. Hmm. And in the middle of that was, here's our calling Mm -hmm. in a very clear manner. Here's who we are. If something doesn't line up, we've actually cut it out. And so, you know, it was a big meal. It was a, it was almost a party Mm -hmm. and it reshaped the congregation's view. It reminded us to say like, here's actually why we're in existence. Um, And so at the, at the time they had a beautiful phrase, their motto was seeking the welfare of the city. This idea of, okay, what's good for Waco is good for us. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to do everything to make this city a better place. Um, and I, so I've seen a church do that really well and it pushed back on bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that storytelling emphasis. Um, share the last one if you would too. Yeah. And this was, this is one that's easy to write, hard to do, right? right. but it's close struggling congregations. Yeah. And I need to put the emphasis on struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing a workshop with pastors and one of them got angry um, and shared that anger with me after the workshop. And he said, small doesn't equal struggling. Yeah. And I think in my talk, I'm accidentally implied that struggling equals small and small equals struggling. Mm-hmm. And so I want to clarify that. And I'm appreciative of that pastor who told me that. So small doesn't mean struggling. But looking at congregations, you know, if 10 years ago you were at 350 and now you're at 75, and there are, no, there are no people under the age of 40, that is some evidence that you might need to look at closing. Um, and there are a lot of resources changing. out there. Exactly, or changing, right? You know, like and part of this the is isn't running a seventy-five person congregation. It's running a seventy-five person congregation inside of the same building, occupying the same land space mm-hmm. and footprint that you used to with three hundred people, and expecting that somehow things are going to turn around without doing anything different. And like it's, you can, you can, you can have, like Todd said, it it is not necessarily struggling to shepherd seventy-five people to end of life in the same community that they've invested in for so long. That's beautiful, and there's something amazing about that. But that does probably mean that at some point that church is going to close its doors. And how are we responsibly stewarding that journey? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And I think what we're going to see are the churches that were founded in the 1950s mm-hmm. in that explosion of building, mm-hmm. both evangelical and mainline churches, they were built on the edge of what then was the city, right. the mm-hmm. suburbs. Right. But now it is no longer the edge. Yeah. Now it is in that middle mm-hmm. aging, mm-hmm. retire, you know, mid-century houses. The suburbs have moved on. Those are where the mega churches are a lot of times. And they're not also downtown legacy churches. Right. right. They're in that middle church plant. And they've got these huge sanctuaries. And they've got 70 people. Yeah. If that. And <laughs> there is something beautiful about a holy death. Um, when I was a pastor, I witnessed that in terms of individuals' lives. What happens when surrounded by loved ones, knowing that you are loved and safe, you can die. Organizationally, there's something beautiful and holy about that. Um, at another workshop I was leading just last month, um, a Baptist church in Bell County, which is um, the county where my university is, um, they closed down. And they ran out of people quicker than they ran out of resources hmm. in terms of money or building. Mm-hmm. And so as a small church, less than 10 people, they had a conversation. What do we do with our money? Mm-hmm. What do we, how do we leave a legacy that reflects this? And it was just a beautiful congregation. I mean, a conversation. Now, of course, there's going to be grief right. around that. Because we absolutely are losing something. Yeah. We are losing a congregation, a community. We're losing a building that was used in one manner that might not be used in that same manner. So I'm, I'm not saying these are easy con- conversations, but I think with the demographics that we're forecasting, we have to be prepared to have those and not let that be like the a reactive last option, but to proactively say, Hey, we're looking at trends before it gets down to two people. Mm -hmm. What would it look like if we said, we're going to have a deadline in five years. Yeah. And for five years, we're going to do everything possible to have really dense community. We're going to love our neighborhood. We're going to look at options, what to do responsibly with this building. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to have an amazing worship service in five years. And we're going to disband. Yeah. You know, that's a hard conversation, but I think we need to prepare leaders for that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, anything to add there? No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it it completely upends the notion of like pastoring a church to the very end is not a failure. It's a success when you, when you're intentional about how it's going to end. So I I totally underscore what Todd just said. Yeah. Well, and I think that should be, so we've had a hundred years of church growth, mm-hmm. 150 years, you know, like second grade awakening on, um, where is St. Augustine's church? Like literally the building and the rituals, like where are Paul's churches, right? They are no longer there. Mm. The church is not dead. Mm-hmm. Capital C church. And that was what we make. We, we move from sociology to theology hmm. and we, we have to look at the Apostles' Creed. We have to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. Hmm. 
So to say that we're going to close one local congregation's doors does not mean the church is dead. It just means it's changing. Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation. Again, the book is Stuck, Why Clergy Are Alienated from Their Calling, Congregation and Career, and What to Do About It. Really recommend the book for pastors and church leaders. Uh, Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Dr. Todd Ferguson and Dr. Josh Packard. Really enjoyed the conversation. Gentlemen, appreciate your time. Uh, These are some closing questions. I always tell folks you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Um, Todd, if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What does that day look like for you? What does the day look like? I mean, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, answer it how you want. Put on the wow. red shoes, put on the hat. Yeah. I'm going to put on some red slippers. Okay. Um, <laughs> part of this is hard. Like I'm, I'm sort of Baptist through and through. Right. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> but so if I were Pope for the day, um, in all honesty, I would reconvene a Jerusalem council. Hmm. What I mean by that, Acts 11, the church realizes Gentiles are coming in. They don't know what to do with it in terms of the Jewish law. Mm-hmm. And they get together. They pray about it. And they change the rules. They literally change the rules from the Old Testament through prayer and understanding who Jesus is. I think some rules need to be changed. Hmm. And um, I think it would be helpful for Christians to get together through prayer, through encountering Christ, um, to say, how do we need to update and modernize the church? Hmm. Josh, same question for you. First of all, I'll just point out that the only good Baptist response to that question, Todd, is to disband to say that you would disband the office of Pope. <laughs> um, the I, I think the and and in some ways what Todd just described was was Vatican II, although without the ecumenical part. Um, right, right. The look, I think what I, I think actually my answer here is is actually something that's going on right now. I mean, the the Pope is the current Pope is doing has called for this thing called a Synod on Synodality, which is a really like some of the worst branding you can possibly <laughs> think of. But what it, it's a meeting about how we're going to do meetings essentially mm-hmm. in the Catholic world. Um, it's, it's craziness. But what it what it means and what the Pope has said is that we are instead of getting cardinals and bishops together to make decisions about the future, we are going to have a three-year process um, where we're going to listen to people from all different cultures about the right ways to listen to them in the future. Mm. Um, because not all forms of listening are the same. A lot of them are culturally constructed and mm. there's power dynamics that need to be taken into account. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know, and, and in the future, whenever we have these synods, like a senate on youth uh, and young adults like they had a few years ago, there will always be this listening component. Mm. Uh, and that I think is, I, I would reinforce that is, is really what I would do as Pope. I think listening and, and like deep, profound listening in relational uh, ways is the, the biggest thing we can do. Yeah, that's intriguing. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Todd's going to have, like, that's, I'm going to go first on this one because Todd's going to have the better okay. answer. Because I only no. know like seven people. <laughs> uh, 
So my, mine is kind of sad, actually. I mean, because this, this this shouldn't be the case. I shouldn't have to bring somebody back. To, I shouldn't have to bring this person back to life. She should still be with us. But it would be Rachel Held Evans. Mm. I, I found her work yeah. to be um, the 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 phrase that I always think of when I think about her work is just clear as a bell. You know, it was there was just it wasn't it wasn't like intentionally provocative, even if some of the even if some of the the topics were. Right. But it was it was just clear reasoning and a, a good alternative to traditional like taken for granted assumptions mm-hmm. and power dynamics. And I just, I appreciated her work so much. I still, you know, I wish she was, were still with us. hundred percent. Yeah. Todd. Josh, I completely agree with you. That's amazing. It's hmm. her, uh, her work has been so meaningful. Um, I would say other than her, um, <laughs> Paul <laughs> from the Bible, <laughs> There are just some questions I would love to say. Now, what did you mean? Um, and so if language were not a barrier, um, I would love to have him back just to clear. I have, I have some clarifying questions I need to ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think we are going to look back. And we are having a cultural level kind of conversation. What I mean by that is like everyone's trying to wrestle with an issue at the same time at different levels mm-hmm. um, about LGBTQ people. I think we are, the church is trying to deal with that issue, trying to understand how to navigate that. Um, and I think what I mean by yeah, cultural level conversation is it is the up in front moment at the time, very much like the civil rights conversation was in the 1960s. And I don't think as a culture, either a Christian subculture or an American culture or a Western culture, however you want to define what culture I'm talking about. Um, we are trying to wrestle with what to do with that. And I think we're going to look back on that time, our time and say, wow, they were really trying to figure out where to go with that. Mm-hmm. I, I, with, with, with no dispute for Todd, especially if we take a, a broader view, like if we're t- depending on how long we're back, we're looking, I mean, you could call this the era of inclusion of diversity going all the way, you know, back to the 1950s, clear to 2050, probably. Um, and and that a lot of the a lot of how people think about us will depend on how we answer that whole century of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but my answer when when I first saw this question, I was thinking like the this gosh, I hate to say the winners and losers here, but the ones that the ones that the the, the sort of like religious expressions that thrive into the future are going to be the ones that figure out how to do relationships in digital spaces mm-hmm. and. There's some places right now that do relationships really well. There are some places that do digital space really well. There's very, very few that are even trying to work at the intersection um, of those two circles of the Venn diagram. Like, how do we do relationships online? Like, who's you know currently there are like some places that are like exploring what the what it means to do church in the metaverse. Can you take communion with with an avatar? Does that right. is that the same thing? Like these are. <laughs> like massive, massive theological questions in things that most people think of as toys right Right. now, but they will not be in the future. Um, What do you hope for the future of Christianity? 
hope for the future of Christianity. Um, I, th- I think a stronger church is one where everybody finds that they have a home. And that might not necessarily be that we all have a home in the same place. Mm-hmm. I hope that we can preserve the diversity of expressions while expanding them in a way that people feel like they have options. This is part of what excites me about digital is that, mm-hmm. you know, as Todd, you know, as we used to, as I saw with my own students, as Todd just mentioned, you know, if, if you're, if you're in a, say a small rural town in central, um, you know, United States and don't feel like there's a community of people who reflect you, you can go online and find it. Right. Um, and that's really exciting. And the church hasn't done a very good job yet of leaning into that. And so I, I hope we, I hope we do that in, um, you know, if I'm being really pie in the sky about it, and part because I just, maybe I'm just a little bit too intellectual, but I just don't understand why we then have to yell at each other. Yeah, it. yeah. So, like, just just because somebody finds a home in one expression, I don't understand why all the time that that means we have to yell at the people who don't find a home in this expression. I do get, like, look, I get that that's, that I'm not saying that, like, like, the lack of action is harmful in certain political situations, but in people's religious expressions, I just, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I, that would be my hope. Yeah. Todd? Yeah. Um, I would say that the church or that Christianity would con- continue to, or people would continue to find the love found in Jesus, the universal mm-hmm. love found in Jesus. And I love, Josh, that you said that everyone would find a home. Um, we're going to have to have conversations in order for everyone to find a home. Yeah, but that's my goal: is that the universal love of Christ will continue to be felt and found. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time, the conversation. I know we've run a little long here, but I thought the uh, conversation was really, really intriguing for me, and I hope it's helpful for our listeners. So, I always leave folks with a word of peace. So, may God's peace be with you both. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romiglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace.